What blanks are missing? Any blanks missing? One B. One E. E? One E? Who, who's talking to me? One B. One B. Their self-righteous ridicule. Okay, then what's one B1? They ignore his warning. Okay, ignore. I mean, you can put ridicule in there, too, if you want. I mean, it would fit, right? Fair enough. Any other missing blanks? Oh, oh three? Three A. Their incredulity. Incredulity. Not even... I-N-C-R-E-G-U-L-I-T-Y. Spell I have it typed in here. Spell check didn't didn't tick it off. Incredulity. There's no G? Oh D. Okay, sorry. Zeb's totally right. There's no way that's right. It wasn't. Um, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Don't ask me to spell things. Um, okay. Uh, my mother. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Oh, no. One. How do you spell imminent? Yes. Okay, spell check didn't tick that one off. Hold on. Imminent. Hold on. Hold on. Imminent. Okay, it, that isn't a word, which is why a spell check didn't go off. It's not the right word. That's what gets me. It's like, well, my, sometimes it's because I don't want to spell the word. Sometimes my fingers trip up for whatever reason. Whenever I type from, and I know how to spell from, my fingers type form. But because form is a word... It doesn't glow red. So this is, yeah, okay. Any others, Mom? The A needs to be an I. Okay, very good. Excellent. Any, any other blanks or typos or anything? Okay. Okay, questions or thoughts from this morning? If not, we can just go down a rabbit trail in the deity of Christ. Um, Don's bringing JP a microphone and me a thesaurus. So your comment about the essential gospel had me thinking, why do we have fewer requirements for getting into heaven than becoming a member of the church? For example, here. No, sure. No, no. Good question. No, no, no. Good question. Um, Because I think rightly so. I, I, if you want to hear, if you want to, I'll, I'll try to give you an answer in a moment. But a fuller answer was given when we did our, like a year ago, we did a series on church membership and we went through our statement of faith. We are bounded together by a common belief system. And our common belief system involves more than the gospel. Um, practically speaking, there's a very practical reason why people who think it's appropriate to baptize infants and people who don't worship in separate congregations because there would be chaos every time a child was born. People genuinely believe the right thing to do is to baptize them are going to be saying, urging you, go baptize your kids. And those of us who don't believe that are saying, no, no, don't do that. You're, you're, 
how is that going to coexist? People with differing views on charismatic gifts, people who are speaking in tongues in the service, it's going to be a rough time. Practically, issues of, of um, uh, complementarianism versus egalitarianism are practically good. And these are important issues, but I think you can be wrong on it and be a Christian, but you're going to have a hard time going to a church with a female pastor if you don't think women are qualified to be pastors. Even though I think that's a serious error, I wouldn't say you're going to hell because of that error, right? So practically speaking, we we draw our circle around, there's a sense of we want some commonality in the faith. So I can look at somebody and say, they might be a Christian. They They might get into heaven. We... Our gathering is not simply the gathering of people going to heaven. We're gathering around a common confession of faith, around a common understanding of what that means to follow Christ. We are gathering around more than simply the gospel. Um, with that, admittedly, we're doing that, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think practically you have to do that. The churches that want to say no creed but Christ, well, first off, that is a creed. It's just a pretty insufficient one. And then, okay, tell me about Jesus. Who's Jesus then? Um, so, now you can come here, and you could be open on your mind on those things. So we, we would require substantive agreement with, not total agreement with our statement of faith. But there we would we would require, you. we've gone on record about what we believe. And you know that coming in. You've read it. You're not going to oppose it. You're not going to start a post-mill Bible study. You know what we teach here. Now, there's plenty of room for people to say, I'm not sure what I think about this or that. And so it's not a, you have to sign every every jot and tittle of our statement of faith. We're looking for substantial agreement. But if someone came and they said, look, you know, um, I'm not sure what I think about infant versus believer's baptism. In theory, you could become a member if you're open to each while we're talking. But if someone's like, I've studied it, I'm firmly landing on the Westminster standards, like you should probably go find a Presbyterian church then. Like you're going to have a hard time because part of it is that some of the commands we have go to, go to Hebrews 13, seven, right? Um, this might be a practical way of explaining this Hebrews 13, seven. No, no. And, and JP, you ask a fantastic question. I appreciate it. Um, Hebrews 13, seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if I'm a member of a church, one of the commands God gives me is to imitate the faith of my leaders. What if I think my leader is mishandling the Bible and I don't want to be anything like him? What if I'm going to um, Andy Stanley's church? I'm not saying Andy Stanley's not a Christian. I don't want to imitate his faith, right? So, so it, it's more than just they're a Christian. So if your leaders are teaching things you don't agree with, how can you obey this? What you're not allowed to do is stay in a church and despise your leaders and think you're better than them. Like, no, go find, either go be part of correcting, go be part of either coming correcting or saying, teach me, because I'm not on the same page as you. Either be part of that process or find a church where you can obey Hebrews 13, 7. What you can't do is just be like, these guys are morons. So that's partly why we, we, we have more focus on our doctrinal statement, because if, if you're going to have a hard time wanting to imitate the faith of the elders of this church, you probably should find a church where you could do that willingly and gladly, because that's what God would have you do. No, we very carefully trying to think through those things. No, no, absolutely. Um, and we'd be open to, are, are you drawing the line too finely? Or, yeah, go, go, go. So kind of... I don't want to accuse you of practicality, but that seems to be 
kind of the thrust of it, right? Practically, this works. So practically, where do you draw the line on other kind of non-biblical issues, right? Non-biblical? I think so, everything I've listed so far is biblical. No, right. But that's my, my ask is yeah. where do you draw the line around, like, we do morning instead of sure. evening, things sure. like that. That's not an issue we've drawn any line around. If, if people were pressing us, if we had a substantial group of people suggesting we do evening, there's no reason we wouldn't consider it. That's not, that's not an issue we'd fight over. That's not a not, that'd be a negotiable issue. I, I see no reason why we wouldn't negotiate when we meet. Now, I don't see any reason to reconsider it because there's nobody suggesting that at right. the moment, but I don't, I'm not aware of that being a non-negotiable. Gotcha. Um, so no, I'd, I'd want to limit it to doctrine. So, um, so Paul in First Corinthians 15 puts, the, if you think of it, we've got it. We, so go to First Corinthians 15. We've got at least precedent for primary and secondary issues. And I think we could probably even by implication get the tertiary issues. So First Corinthians 15, Paul identifies some truth as f- truth of first importance. So we know it's not all truth is equally important. There are truths of first importance, right? Um, and it seems to be centered around the gospel message itself. So, um, verse, chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. Um, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So here is truths that are of first importance truths, which clearly makes it clear there are truths that aren't first importance truths. Um, and so most people thinking through this are comfortable usually with at least three circles. Um, gospel issues. You're not a Christian if, you're, if, you, if you differ on this. And you've got to have biblical warrants. Like, so one of the challenges for inerrancy, why I wouldn't put inerrancy in that circle, is I'm not aware of the passage that says, don't believe this, you're damned. You've got Jesus. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The, the humanity of Jesus, First John, whoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is the Antichrist. So like, you need texts like that to say, why would you insist the humanity of Jesus is essential? Because of 1 John 2, that's why. Why would you insist the deity of Christ is an essential truth? Because of John 8, that's why. So why faith alone? Because Romans 3, that's why. You, it, it's a good biblical exercise. How can I justify these are crucial beliefs as opposed to secondary beliefs that are still of huge importance? Huge importance. And I'd say some of the secondary beliefs applied practically will unravel the gospel. Inerrancy, very quickly, if you let go of it, then it, the Bible can mean and say whatever you want it to mean and say, and you've got no mooring and you can drift into anything. Anything goes, because any passage you don't like, you can say, well, that's not true. So the practical implications of people who deny inerrancy is almost certainly, very quickly, they're denying the gospel. But somebody like C.S. Lewis, who troubles me, I love Lewis, he thinks there are some errors in the Bible. He does. But I think he gets the gospel, right? And I expect to see him in heaven, right? So you can apparently be confused on that issue and still be a believer, I think, um, and I'd say the same with a number of other issues, but we're going to have a hard time gathering practical. No, no, it is pragmatic. No, JP, it is pragmatic in a sense. We've got to figure out what we believe in. What, another way of saying it would be like this. Those of us who lead 
what are we clear on in the Bible? And we're sort of making it clear. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. And I'm totally open to meeting on some of these issues. Some of you may know George Luke. George Luke um, and I have gotten together and had four or five-hour debates, friendly, good debates, on, on doctrinal issues, eschatology, baptism. Love the guy. We're not on the same page. It's totally cool. It's great. And I'd welcome that. And if, if, uh, if, if he wanted to gather here, he'd be welcome to gather here. But there is a sense in which, until we're persuaded otherwise, this is what we believe the Bible says. We have to teach what we believe the Bible teaches. I can't legitimately pretend I don't believe what I don't believe, what I do believe. I can't pretend something's, I think something's ambiguous that I think is clear, right? So I can't pretend, who knows what the issue on baptism, I think the Bible's clear in baptism, um, and so I can't pretend I don't think that. And our leadership believes that. So there's a sense in which part of our doctrinal statement, maybe another way of viewing it, is the leaders of this church, this is a common confession of what we think the Bible says. And you're, if, if that's close to where you're at, come join with us. Um, if that's not close to where you're at, come talk with us. But it wouldn't be ghost, it, it would not be you don't believe this goes someplace else. It would be you don't, if we're not largely on the same page, we probably want to get largely on the same page. You're going to have a very hard time um, obeying commands you have relationship to leaders. Does that, so, so then as we try to figure out what things to put in our statement of faith, why don't we have in our statement of faith a statement on, what's the doctrinal issue we don't have? We don't have anything on Calvinism in our statement of faith. We don't have anything on predestination in our statement of faith. What about like life, the issue of life, pro-life? Pro-life, no, we don't have anything in there. We could, we totally could. And um, as we add things to our statement of faith, it's generally those things that, we, so the, mo- the most recent thing we added to our statement of faith was a statement on sexuality, gender, and marriage. And partly it was because you, that is such a divisive issue that we want to be upfront on what we believe for two reasons. We want someone coming in here can't claim, I didn't know that you believed such terrible things. Like, no, dude, we're right up front about it. And then, then we've got a legitimate grounds if somebody starts to teach against that to say, look, you knew what we believed. You became a member. You, you said you wouldn't oppose it. You can't do that. Um, so 20 years ago, there was no need to have that in the statement of faith because it wasn't even controversial. Everyone assumed that. So it may well be, I think, for most evangelical Christians, the issue of abortion and pro-life is clear-cut. If, if we thought it wasn't, we'd totally consider adding it. So doctrinal statements tend to be responses to controversy. So I, I don't know how many times I've heard this from um, professors, uh, liberal Christians, that inerrancy is an enlightenment doctrine, which on the face of it is nonsensical. And the Enlightenment's humanism, it's rationalism, it's, it's Jefferson's Bible getting all the miracles got rid of. The notion that the Enlightenment would breed a view of a supernatural inerrant book. No, the Enlightenment brought the attack on inerrancy. And now for the first time, the church that had always held to inerrancy had to defend it. So you start seeing the books on inerrancy about the time of the Enlightenment. It's ridiculous to think... That's when they created the doctrine. No, that's when the doctrine started getting challenged. And that's similarly, you could conclude the church has always been pro-gay marriage until just recently because you'll only find books against it recently. No, it got challenged recently. So the books came out recently. The, the doctrinal statements arrive when the controversy arrives, which is why we don't have anything in our statement about demon possession and ancestral demons. You go down to Haiti a lot of churches will have parts of their doctrinal statement on that because that's a practical issue. So 
our doctrines that we, the doctrines we have to define carefully usually are because they're being challenged. And so we got to get together and say, well, that's, that's where the earliest statements on the, we're going to get back to the deity of Christ came was when it got challenged by the Arians. And so that's when they had to work out the Athanasian Creed and they had to work out the, uh, the Constantinople, the Council of Constantinople to hammer out what exactly do we think and every word matters. That's all in response to Jesus is great, but he's not God. And whoa, we gotta we gotta really think see what we think through that. So part of our doctrinal statement would be in response to controversy, and most likely any future additions to our doctrinal statement would be in that light. Hey, it's things that we've assumed up to this point, probably can't assume anymore, we should probably be clear on. But there's a sense in which it is pragmatic. There's no rule. What why don't why do we have this but not this? Why don't we have anything on sovereignty and election and predestination? We totally could, but we don't. Uh, maybe we'll think that'd be good to go on record on in the future. We don't have, I'll tell you one that we probably should consider thinking about is the whole um, gender egalitarian complementarian issue. What offices can women hold in the church? That would probably be, just with what's going on around, it'd probably be good. I, I think that's worth considering as something to potentially add to our statement of faith to be clear on. If I had to guess, if I had to predict, my guess would be that might be something we'd do. I mean, that's something the church needs to discuss and consider, but that it seems like that might be appropriate. And certainly as we've had a number of new people come on in the last year or so, a lot of them, hey, what's your view? Like, huh, they can't just assume where we're at because that's such a controversial issue in the, in the American church. But there is a sense in which it's just responding to the times and it's not ironclad. Your statement of faith will have these things in it. So sure, does that... No, it's a great question, but that, that's basically what's going on. Renee, Linda, sorry. Totally different subject. Yeah, totally different. You can yeah. tell me if it's illegal. You can punt. Okay. But what verses would you share with an Arminium to convince them of the truth of the gospel that they can't lose their salvation? <laughs> John 10 would be a great place. Um, no one can snatch it out of my hand. Um, I mean, there's tons, and when we get there, we'll get there. But in John 10, Jesus, Jesus says in John 10 um, that uh, no one can snatch them out of his hand. But you don't meet many full Arminians. You meet, you meet like three and four pointers. Most people like eternal security. Um, but you might meet someone who doesn't. Um, but John 10, Arminianism is the name of the non-Calvinistic, non-sovereign. Okay, real fast, real fast. Um, in, the, in, the, in the wake of the Reformation, um, some followers, see, they get called Calvinism and Arminianism, even though both the guys who they're named after weren't involved in the controversy. After Calvin's dead, after Jacob Arminius is dead, disciples of Jacob Arminius wanted to alter the statement of faith of um, the Heidelberg, right? Was it Heidelberg, Zeb? They wanted to five changes made. And the council is so strong, the council of Dort so strongly refuted them that they positively, it's not enough to say no, we need to positively say what we think. And that's where you get your five points of Calvinism from. But this is long after Calvin and Arminius are dead. It's, it's followers of Jacob Arminius. And it gets called Calvinism because Calvin's writings and his institutes proved to be the most useful and um, commonly used resources for arguing it. So people quickly as shorthand. I'm, I'm what Calvin laid out in his institutes, that's where I'm at. That's how I get the term. But the fifth point of the, of the followers of Arminius was that you could lose your salvation. And the, the Council of Dort so strongly refuted it that they wanted to positively state the perseverance of the saints. John 10, I'd say 27 through 30 
would be a good place to start. Um, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, there's tons of text. That'd be a great one. That seems pretty... Clear, and since we are far afield, can we leave it at that? We can. We'll get there in chapter ten. Okay, no problem. No problem. Okay, a little church history there. We go. Okay, Don. Uh, would uh, the Jews of Jesus' day, especially the the uh, elite, um, have would they have had any issue calling themselves uh, children of God? Uh, they, they know they referenced. Abraham is their father, or, mm-hmm. or, or not so much children of God, but they, they, I knew they felt they were the chosen people, but would they have any issue with saying, God is my father? Okay, that's a good question. Well, they say in John 8, God is our father. Now, they don't, they're clearly not comfortable. When Jesus in his, teaches his prayer to the disciples, our father not in heaven, You've, so you have for antecedent precedent, you don't have David calling God Father. You have Solomon at the dedication of the temple declaring, Lord, you are our Father. So it would be less like Dad and more like you have created us. You are, so when we talk about like the brotherhood of man in that sense, they, they can use those categories. The notion of a father you can run to, a father you can wake up in the middle of the night because you're scared. No, that, that's, that seems to be entirely a new development that Jesus brings to the table. But they're recognizing, even, even in Job, the sons of God and the daughters of men, Genesis 6, same language. God is the father in the sense he's the father of all. He created all life. He, he's the father and author of everything. In that sense, he's their father. In the Old Testament, um, out of Egypt I called my son. That's Israel. So Israel is God's son, corporately. And so they can use those categories. The, the intimacy of the father language that Jesus introduces seems to be entirely unprecedented. So even in John 8, they're willing in some sense to say, eh, they're much, they much more prefer we're sons of Abraham. But if you press us, God's our father. And then they know he's not your father. Um, let me tell you about your dad. So is that... You want to go further with that, or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no. I... No, it's a, you know, go read through the Psalms. As intimate and as um, heartfelt as the Psalms are, you don't see the Father language. That that is that is a blessing that the New Covenant brings, I, as I understand it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, Bridget. So, what do you think are the essential points um, to being saved or being a Christian? Sure. That was what I was hoping to do this morning. What is the irreducible gospel? Um, I think it largely centers around who Jesus is and what he did and how you benefit from that. I can think of really three key points, um, maybe out of fourth or a fifth. So let's start with the deity of Christ from this morning. If you buy that, go to 1 John, the humanity of Jesus is essential. And then you've got to have a third category. There are some truths <laughs> that... I'm not sure you have to affirm, but you can't knowingly deny. That makes any sense. Like, even the, even the humanity of Jesus, the statement is more. See, the deity, Jesus insists, you must believe that I am he. Affirming the proposition is essential. In 1 John 2, it's you can't deny this, which means you might have somebody like, do you think Jesus, what do you think that it means that Jesus is the son of God and that he's man? Do you think he's fully man? I don't know. He's the son of God. He was, well, I don't know. How to, you might still be okay. What you can't do is deny Jesus came in the flesh. 
So even there, you want to be careful. You've got text under your feet if you're going to list a doctrine, a teaching as absolutely essential to salvation. Um, that doesn't, and again, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean it's not important just because it's not in that innermost first order ring. So 1 John chapter 2, um, where is it? Um, well, here's a couple statements. 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. That's a pretty black and white statement, right? Um, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, some confession about Jesus seems critical. <laughs> I mean, no, but this is a good exercise of... Um, sorry, I'm looking at Natalie when it's Bridget. Sorry, my brain got confused. Like some, Natalie's like, why are you talking to me? It's Bridget back there. Okay. Um, so where's the one I'm looking for in... And who denies that the Son came in the flesh? Is that... four? Chapter 4, 15... Um, at 4.13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know. Um, where, okay, that's not the one I'm looking for. Where is whoever confesses Jesus? Came, oh, there it is, 4.3, 4.2 and 3. Okay. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there you've got a real black... Like, and you need texts like this to say, look, you don't confess Jesus came in the... Because the earliest Christian heresy was not the denial of the deity of Christ. It was the denial of the humanity of Jesus. Because Plato's metaphysics, the physical world is inherently corrupt. According to Plato, the physical world is the shadow on the cave, it's the corruption, um, and spirit and thought and logos is pure. And so God could appear to be flesh, and he could appear to be human, but he couldn't really become human or else he'd corrupt himself. That's the earliest, the earliest errors. And so First John's evidencing already that that's creeping in to the church. And John's saying, look, you deny the humanity of Jesus, you're, you're playing for the other team. You're on team Antichrist. So the deity of Christ, John 8, the humanity of G- Jesus in John in First John 4, and then justification by faith alone, Galatians or Romans. But let's go to Galatians. Um, and like I said, this is a good exercise because you need textual warrant to say this is your plan on the other team. So I can think the Bible is clear on election predestination, but I don't think people aren't Christians because they disagree with me. And I can think the Bible is clear on who to baptize, but I don't think George Luke's not a Christian because he and I are not yet on the same page. If you're listening, George, love you. Um, every, now and, every now and then, he's one of the five people who listen to the podcast. So, um, No, I love the guy. He's great. And we have great discussions, and hopefully one of us will win the other one of these days, because God's word's clear. Um, the weakness is clearly in me or in him. So um, let's go to uh, Galatians and chapter 1. Galatians 1, um, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Greek anathema, damned to hell. So Paul starts Galatians off saying there's an error that's compromising the gospel and whoever's behind it, go to hell. That's what he's saying. Damns. He damns the people propagating the alteration of the gospel. So let's find out what is the alteration of the gospel that's going on in Galatia. Um, and we find out, ooh, there's a number of places we could go. Let's go to chapter 5. Um, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subjected again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. We're getting close now. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. And I'd argue extensively that in Galatians, the issue is faith alone or faith and works of the law. And Paul, in in this case, it's as simple of an addition as faith plus circumcision. Today, there are churches that say it's faith plus baptism. It's hard to see how that's any different. And Paul is, is dying on the hill that faith plus circumcision is a different gospel and people go to hell for believing it and people go to hell for teaching it. I think that's the unavoidable conclusion of Galatians. This is the basis. Texts like this are the basis for why Martin Luther fought and stood and would not recant against the Roman Catholic Church. So, so, So it's Protestants' justification that we are forgiven by faith alone. This morning, what? how do I not die in my sins? By believing that Jesus Christ is he. That's how. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be baptized. I'm baptized to be obedient, and if I wasn't baptized, it would demonstrate a lack of faith that could eventually draw into question whether I have faith at all, but only by linking to faith, not you haven't been baptized, you're going to hell. Um, It would be you you persist in sin and don't submit to Christ, therefore, how do you have faith? That would be the avenue to which you could challenge my salvation if I persisted in willful disobedience, but not through simply... You haven't been baptized. Um, but justification by faith. So it would really seem to be centered around who Jesus is and what he did and how you are forgiven. So to put it simply, I'd say the irreducible gospel would be clarity on the person of Jesus. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's human, he's, and, he's, and he's come in the flesh, and he's God. And that trusting in his death on the cross and, and the resurrection, Paul puts the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, as a first importance. Let's go there, last place. First important issues. Um, and if you wanted to argue that scripture is part of the essential truths, 1 Corinthians 15 is how you'd get there. I'm not sure I'd buy it, but if you were going to argue it, you'd argue it from 1 Corinthians 15. Because um, Paul's formula of first order issues is the following. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's your reference to the scriptures. Um, That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500. Oh, the last piece I'd say is the resurrection is essential. And you get that from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul does an extended reductum absurdio, which is, you do this all the time, you know this. 
if you disagree with someone's position, you try to show that by extrapolation. If what, if what you're saying is true, then these other things also are true. And I think you'd agree these other things are unacceptable or are ridiculous. That's reductum absurdio. You take someone's argument and you produce absurd results. Paul does an extended version of that here with people who deny the resurrection. Watch. Um, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? I think the Corinthians were simply denying there's an afterlife. There, there is no life after this. This is all there is. I, that'd be my guess. And so he's saying, if that's the case, then how did Jesus raise from the dead? And if Christ, um, okay, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then even Christ has not been raised. So these people are saying, hey, we don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. And Paul is going to say, well, if that's true, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if that's true, then, and watch this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true the dead are not raised. For if, Christ, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, that's the only other reference I can get to that phrase Jesus uses in John 8. You're, you will die in your sins. You're in your sins here. Um, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. So there's seven consequent, correl- seven things follow. If the dead aren't raised, these fall, seven things follow. Paul's preaching's in vain. Their faith is in vain. They've been lying about God. Um, Verse 17, your faith is futile. They're still in their sins. Those who've died as Christians have perished. And we of all people have no hope of the most we pitied in this world. Those are are some of the consequent um, implications of denying the resurrection. So I would say the resurrection of Jesus is an essential teaching. Paul says no resurrection of Jesus give up and go home. We're all of all people the most we pitied. But that's about what, I mean, if, 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 if you want to suggest something, just give me your backing, but I'd say who Jesus is, what he did, how we're forgiven, the rest, his, his sacrificial death and resurrection, that would be, I would put my circle around the irreducible gospel and around those things. Eric. Um, as Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians about if Christ wasn't raised, then there is no resurrection. Is that a message to the Sadducees of his Corinthian audience? Probably. That would seem to be the best. We know the Sadducees they, didn't live in the resurrection. Right. So for whatever reason, these people don't. Now, they're Corinthians. I don't know whether it's a sad. It would, certainly be, it would certainly be a rebuke to the Sadducees. Now, whether or not they're getting this from other means, because Corinth is a pretty Hellenized city and it's pretty... It's pretty. It's a seaport, so they got. All, it could have come from many directions, but Sadducees is just as valid of an option as anything else. Absolutely. Now, the Corinthian church has got a lot of problems, and the fact that they got people denying the resurrection is just one of them. You got people going to prostitutes. You got people sleeping with their stepmother. You got. You got. It's just they got problems, um, and God can work with them, even as He's rebuking them. Paul loves them, and they're believers, and He's going to try to fix their wagon. But hey. But here, when he gets to this, he's like, whoa, no resurrection, no gospel, no faith, go home, give up. We're of all the people the most to be pitied. So, again, that's where I'm getting a, trying to get a biblical warrant to say, okay, then that, that's mission-critical stuff. Um, so, anyone, anyone want to alter? Oh, Zach, alter or add to my 
I think it's a good assignment to go through the irreducible gospel. What, what are those truths that if you deny, and this is tough because you've got to look at people who you want to, who seem nice. If we can't agree that Christ was raised from the dead, we, we don't have anything in common. We can't agree Jesus is God. We don't have anything in common. Like these, these are absolute lines in the sand. Yes, Zach. So there's another one that seems like it should be essential. It seems pretty obvious, but I couldn't think of a passage for it. So I was thinking, well, maybe this is one of those, like, it can be, someone could be confused on, and later it'll probably work itself out if they really are a believer. But, um, so like God being the only God, like what if you have a convert? Actually, I would, you're quite right. Go to Hebrews 11. I'd add that. Yes. No, no, this is, even as I haven't done this exercise in a while, so I'm trying to think of what passage. Hebrews, Hebrews 11. Yes. I would add, I'd add. God, I'd say by implication, he died on the cross for our sins. Sin, judgment, those, those are essential. There is a God, and you own accounting to him, and you're not going to do well in that accounting. <laughs> right? Um, even in 1 Corinthians 15, he died on the cross according to our sins. I mean, died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. Um, there's a lot tied up in there. But in Hebrews 11, we learn that the barest minimum of faith is that God is. Let me get there, Hebrews 11. Here we go. Um, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, and that ESV has exists. It's just he is. Must believe that God is, and that he rewards those who seek him. So, that would seem to be a bare element of faith. If we're saved by faith, a bare minimum of what faith believes is that God is, and he rewards those who seek him. So, yes, belief in the one God. You may, I, I'm not even, Zebel fight me on this one, I'm not even convinced Trinitarianism is essentially to be worked out. I've got all sorts of room for people being all types of confused on that. I don't think you can, de- well, you can't deny Trinitarianism without denying the deity of Christ, but if someone's like, I don't know what to make of it, I'm fine. I'm fine with you. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure the earliest Christians. <laughs> for long. Fair enough. No, fair, fair enough. For long. Yes. But I look at like the Philippian jailer probably did not have a developed Trinitarian theology when he got saved. Right? So, and, that, and that's where we want to put the next order out would be like, even like scripture, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. So if you've got someone who says they're a Christian and they're not hearing his voice in his word, as a, as a very immediate secondary issue, I'm starting to wonder, like, are you really a sheep then? So even though I wouldn't put inerrancy as first order in or out, it would very quickly get there through that secondary issue. Um, just like we know people who, like people who walk in persistent unrepentant sin don't know God. First John's clear about that. So I don't care what you say you believe. If you're walking in darkness and say you have fellowship with God, you lie and do not practice the truth. Like, okay. Um, yes, Lee. Um, I'm thinking as we're talking all this, so much of it is also definitions. Yeah. Because you say Jesus is God. So, of course, it leads to the question, who is God? He's holy. He's this. Right, he's that. Right. He's that. And so if you don't come to the same conclusion on what even the words mean, right. which words do have those specific right. meanings, super right. important. Well, and, and let me add some clarity. I'd say that the issues about who is God really come back to not suppressing what you already know. So in natural revelation, um, there's information that God has given to every single human being on the planet. And when, 
let me clarify. Natural revelation does not refer to what can be known about God in, in his creative order. It's what's, what is known about God. So when you think of science and scientific discovery, that's not the category of natural revelation. People didn't know about gravity until you know, Newton did it. This is things like Psalm 19. There is no day-in-to-day pours for speech where Romans 1, for although they knew God. So Romans would say what people already know is there is a holy God. You owe him thanks and obedience. You don't, and you're facing judgment. That's what everyone already knows. Now, Romans 1 makes it clear people are suppressing that. So an, an, an additional part of the irreducible gospel, but can you be honest about the stuff you already know? Can you, can you be honest about the stuff you already know? And then who Jesus is and what he did completes the... In other words, what you already know, I'd say, would be what Jesus says. You're going to die in your sins. Everybody already knows that. Um, everybody already knows that. That would be Romans 1, 2, and 3. Um, therefore, you're without excuse, O man. Paul says three times, you're without excuse. There is no excuse. No one before God's going, I didn't know. Yes, you did. And Paul points out they're not excused that God didn't exist. The creation evidences him. They, can't, they have no excuse they knew about right and wrong. Why? You had a conscience. It, it approved and condemned you. And they can't say, I didn't know judgment was coming for doing wrong. Yes, you did because you judge other people, didn't you? Yeah, you did. Yeah, okay. You knew. You knew. So everybody knows that. My kids know that. They, I had one of my twins kick the other twin because they took something. Under, no, understand, that's theology being worked out. You did wrong. I will punish you. Bear my wrath. They get it. It's hardwired. They didn't have to teach a class. They understood. Transgress the law, pain. Right? No. Three-year-old. Three-year-old gets this. Everybody knows this. And so, so when we stand before God, God's going to treat us as though we know this. Now, we can suppress the truth and pretend we don't know this and convince ourselves we don't know this. But this is what through natural revelation everyone knows. So an, a part of the irreducible gospel would be, can, can you be honest about the stuff that I know you know? That, that would be part of it. But the new content would be who Jesus is, what he did, and trusting in him and his death and resurrection for salvation. That's the gospel. If we agree on that, we can disagree on just about everything else and disagree as a family. We can disagree as fa- household members. Um, if we can't agree on that, which is this is where Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, as, as I understand them, they have a different Jesus. They have a non-divine Jesus. And so even though we're going to agree on so many ethical issues, even though we're going to agree on so many secondary issues, we don't agree on who Jesus is, I think we're playing on different teams. Um, It doesn't mean I get to look down my nose and be rude or mean, but I'm not treating them like family members. I'm not treating them like brothers and sisters. This is, you're on the other side of a a line here. Um, Which I don't treat people who disagree on a number of other issues I've brought up this morning. That makes sense. Okay, Ben. Um, one of Paul's experiences uh, when he's preaching to the people in Athens wraps up most of this conversation. Marcel, <clears throat> through natural revelation, they know that there's a God out there. Yeah, some a, a God that's not like their gods. Um, Acts. Uh, that would be seventeen. Seventeen. Yes. Um, Paul starts preaching to them. He says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. We can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He made everything. He continues on a ways. And Mm. 
he gets to a point, he says, For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection, some laughed in contempt. Others said, we want to hear more about this later. So that ended Paul's discussion with them. Anyways, in in proving who God is, he brings up the resurrection because that is obviously a supernatural event. No, the resurrection is the... You go through the book of Acts, the resurrection is what they're proclaiming, almost eclipsing the cross. The resurrection. The re- God raised him. God raised him. God has proven it by raising him. God has furnished proof by raising him from the dead. And we're witnesses. He re- it, they're, they're announcing the resurrection um, even more than they're announcing the cross. And they are announcing the cross. I'm not trying to minimize they're announcing the cross. It's just the resurrection is what they're announcing. Um, and because in their method, in their understanding, that's the proof. That's the vindication. You can claim to be a lot of things, but also claim you're going to get raised from the dead on the third day. And you do, you win. <laughs> right. Um, and he did, he won any other, just about at time. Oh, oh, Deb. My only question when we went through this first was justification by faith. We know what it means, yeah. but somebody like your twins, <laughs> no, that would be that would be that boil. would be part. So, so, so we, to boil we, this down, yeah, yeah, it gets into what you're saying is faith means a bottom line that I know I need a savior. Yeah, you're trusting in him. Yeah, because um, otherwise and, and, you're going to hell. I love, I love. I'm sure many of you have seen this on Facebook. I love um, Alistair Begg's example of the thief on the cross. Um, about, uh, he's like, can you imagine? Whoever's at the, you know, he's, he's, he's being somewhat silly, but it's it's profound. The the thief on the cross shows up, and whoever's like, you know, checking ID at the entrance to heaven, which is part of what makes it silly. He's like, so uh, what church are you a member of? Was a member of a church? Were you baptized? No, I wasn't baptized. Okay, do you at least believe in justification by faith? I think you have to have faith, but that you know that that's a key issue. I'm not sure it's clear. So no, I. And they picture going through this. Well, did you did you get catechized? No, you know. Do you, you know, do you believe in the Trinity? I'm not. I haven't heard of Trinity. Um, why 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 should you get in here? The man in the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> like no no, and there's room. No, like I really wrestled with C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis, who I really love, had some wacky views on the atonement, on, on what Jesus is doing on the cross. If any of you ever read the Lineless and Wardrobe. The, the view of the atonement presented there is not substitutionary atonement. Yeah, he's, Jesus is paying, I mean, Aslan is paying the witch. It's, it's the ransom theory. It's the ransom theory. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an alternate view of the atonement where Jesus' death on the cross is paying Satan, um, which is not orthodox. He tended to prefer that view. And I really wrestled with how can Lewis, how can Lewis bungle the atonement? And then as I'm reading through his biography uh, a couple of years ago, he, he makes this statement. Um, I'm, I would, I'll, I'll find it. But uh, he makes this statement basically to the effect of, I'm, my cement's wet. I'm not set on this. And at the end of the day, what matters is we trust that because Jesus died for our sins, we can go to heaven. That's what I'm trusting. And we can discuss how that exactly works out. What matters is we trust that. And I'm like, okay. Okay, Lewis, you you skate, you, you're okay. I'm getting, no, because I rest. I really wrestle. How can somebody like deny 
substitutionary atonement. And he doesn't deny it. He just likes, he more gravitates towards, prefers the ransom theory, um, where Jesus is paying Satan for on the cross, um, which is, is a medieval view. It's not, I don't think it's right. But I really appreciated them acknowledging, I'm not sure, but what I am sure about is Jesus died for my sins, and on that basis I can be forgiven and go to heaven. I'm like, okay, Lewis, I can... Okay, I think we're on the same team. I think we're good. Um, no, but it, it troubled me because like substitutionary atonement is like the heart of the gospel. On what basis can we be forgiven? Um, because someone died in my place, because someone took my penalty, because someone else bore God's wrath. Either I died in my sins or Jesus died in my sins. But that's it. Somebody's dying in my sins. And I believe Jesus died in my sins and yours. That's, that's the gospel. Okay, we're at time. I can stick around, we can talk some more, but uh, God bless, Godspeed, and good day.